So thanks, uh, thanks everyone again. And um, we're going to start off with uh, Charity Anderson for the first session with Oprah Magador uh, commenting. OK. Um, so uh, Charity's paper is about an argument of Hume's, uh, an argument claiming that we cannot rationally believe on the basis of testimony that a miracle occurred. And Charity argues that the argument has two components. Uh, one component is the claim that miracles are incredibly unlikely events. And the second component has to do with the sort of bad track record of testimonies by miracles. So some stuff that Hume says about that is both the idea that lots and lots, perhaps all previous testimonies of miracles have been false, and also some stuff about various psychological and sociological factors that would kind of make people uh, either falsely believe in miracles or falsely, uh, you know, or uh, lie when they're testifying about them. Okay, so all of these factors should make us very suspicious about the testimonies themselves. And one of the things that uh, Charity argues for in her paper is that the commentators of, on Hume have really focused on the first component, the unlikelihood of the miracle, but the second component, the track record of these testimonies, is really um, important to Hume's argument as well. Okay, and her paper consists of three parts. In the first part, she makes some comments about that second component, the track record component, and why it might entitle us to dismiss such testimonies. Uh, in the second part, she discusses the role of the unlikelihood of miracles um, in Hume's argument. And in the third part, she connects this issue to uh, some considerations about defeat, and she suggests that maybe even if Hume is right that we have kind of very strong reasons uh, to think, to sort of question such testimonies of miracle, we, we might still be able to get knowledge of miracles using um, this kind of testimony. So what I'm going to do in my comments is I'll just uh, talk about each of the three parts of Charity's paper in turn and just raise a few um, questions and comments. Okay, so the first part to do with the track record and defeat. So let's assume that, in fact, testimonies of miracles have had a really bad track record in the past. Um, how exactly does this get us to the claim that we cannot rationally believe in a miracle on the basis of such a testimony? And after some discussion, uh, Charity suggests the following principle. It's on your handout, track record defeat star. It says, in the absence of any special evidence for S's reliability or special evidence regarding P, if you believe that most people who testify to an event of type X have testified falsely, then when S testifies to P, an event of type X, you're not justified in believing P. Okay, I want to raise just a couple of questions about the formulation of this principle. Uh, one thing I'm interested in is why Charity chooses to phrase the principle um, using, the, you know, using the claim that uh, you believe that the event has a, uh, you believe that testi testimonies of this type of event have a bad track record rather than 
they in fact have a bad track record, right? This is especially interesting given that at least in the last section of the paper, Charity seems sympathetic to a very, very externalistic uh, view of knowledge on certain views of how knowledge connects to justification. You might think that goes along with a very externalist view of justification. Um, so I'm wondering whether we should really focus on whether you believe uh, testimonies of this case have a bad track record or they in fact have a bad track record. I mean, one thing that may be going on is that Hume himself may be taking a much more uh, internalist kind of position on this. But anyway, that's what issue. Uh, another issue is this. Uh, Charity explicitly restricts her principle to cases where you don't have any special evidence regarding P. And her thought is, uh, you know, suppose I had a really good justification from another source that P is true. Perhaps I even know that P is true. And then someone testifies that P, the thought is, well, in that case, uh, it's not true that I'm not justified in believing P because my belief isn't based on the testimony, right? I may have some other very good evidence for P. Um, okay, so I think actually, though, things are not uh, so simple, and this will connect a bit to the issues of defeat and come back later, because if you really think that a certain kind of uh, testimony is very, very likely to be false, then the fact that someone testified that P might in itself be very strong evidence that not P, right? Perhaps misleading evidence that not P, right? And you might think even if you had prior justification that P, even if you knew that P, maybe this kind of new evidence that you're getting a testimony that P should, is a kind of a defeater. It should cause you to stop being justified in your previous belief, right? And I think one thing that's going on is that um, in the case of miracles, I think we don't quite think of the testimonies this way. So we don't think that the fact that people are testifying for the miracle is in itself an indicator that what they're saying is false, right? We just think they kind of have no idea either way. It's not a, you know, it doesn't, it's not in itself particularly an indication that the miracle claim is true or that it's false. And since we already have a very low uh, prior on the miracle being true, then we kind of end up not being justified in the miracle, right? But we can certainly imagine situations that don't work like that, right? So if there's a kind of lot of evil demons around that are complete, completely omniscient, and suppose they especially like to lie about miracles, so 99% of the time, whenever they say anything about a miracle, they're lying. Um, in that case, if one of these evil demons told us that a miracle has occurred, then maybe that should in itself uh, give us reason to think it didn't occur, right? Even if we had some prior evidence that it did occur. Okay, so that's about the principal track record defeat story. Okay, Charity then goes on um, to talk about two different ways in which a purported piece of evidence, in our particular case, uh, testimony, can be dismissed. Um, now, I'll just note in passing, there was something that slightly threw me off in the way she phrased things, because on the one hand, she was talking about dismissing as if it was a kind of thing the agent did, right? An agent can 
dismiss or not dismiss a bit of evidence and they might do it appropriately or inappropriately. Um, but the actual clauses for what it is to dismiss, which you can see on your handout, are just, they're not about anything the agent does. They're just about whether the testimony, how, whether the testimony is or isn't evidence for the claim that the, I don't think this is a major, it's just a quibble about the exact formulation, but because of that, I'm going to talk in a slightly different way. I'm going to talk about uh, a certain bit of testimony being strongly dismissible or weakly dismissible, okay? And it's strongly dismissible for us just in case uh, the testimony provides no evidence whatsoever for us that P, and it's weakly dismissible for us where it provides only negligible evidence for us that P. Okay, so two interesting comments that Charity makes about these notions. Um, one is that she says, the case where a bit uh, of testimony is strongly dismissible is possible, but very, very rare. And she raises one kind of situation where a bit of testimony will be strongly dismissible. So suppose it's certain on your evidence that the testimony is false. Okay, that would be a case where um, the bit of testimony will be strongly dismissible. Um, now, to be fair, she only mentions this as one case, and she does make a note that that's not the only way uh, a bit of testimony will be strongly dismissible. Uh, but I would like to note that I think uh, it's a lot more common than she suggests the possibility of a bit of testimony being strongly dismissible. Right? So consider the following case, suppose, my priors, I'm going to do everything, I'm going to do it in terms of probability talk. So suppose my priors are such that I have 50% uh, credence in P and 50% credence in not P. And suppose that my probability of not P given the testimony is 0.6 and my probability of P given the testimony is 0.4, okay? So I just have a slightly, I just think it's slightly more likely this testimony was false than true. Sorry, the testimony itself claims that P. That's the content of the testimony. The thought is, in this case, after I conditionalize on the testimony, uh, I've lowered a little bit my initial confidence in P. So this is a case where, uh, Right, the testimony is strongly dismissible because it's providing no evidence at all that P. In fact, it's <laughs> providing counter evidence. Okay, but this doesn't require being certain that the testimony is false. Right, this just means I'm a little more likely that it's uh, false than true. Okay, I think what's going on is that again, in the case of the uh, in the miracle case, this isn't going to be the situation. I mean, one reason is that we have the very, very low prior in the miracle being true. But uh, to be uh, a bit more precise, we can just see that uh, the probability, so this is on your handout, I think, uh, the probability of the miracle being true is just the probability of the testimony given the miracle divided by the probability of the testimony times the probability of the miracle. Okay, now if we want to see 
whether conditionalizing on the testimony, we've increased our prior probability on the miracle, all we need to check is whether this thing is greater than one, right? And this is gonna be greater than one, just in case the probability of the testimony on the miracle is gonna be greater than the probability of the testimony. Okay, and I think what's going on is in the case of miracle, we usually think of this as being incredibly high. Um, it depends a bit how you're construing what the miracle is, but on one way of construing what the miracle is, this is just gonna be one, right? So one way of doing this is just building it into the content of the miracle, where the miracle is, you know, uh, uh, you know, God, uh, you know, uh, does some fancy stuff, and part of the miracle is that there are some witnesses to watch it, and those witnesses go and tell about it to other people, okay? So if you do it this way, this is just going to be one, so um, we're not going to get this kind of case. Okay, uh, another interesting note that Charity makes about the notion of weak dismissibility is he says, okay, we have this kind of vague notion of providing negligible evidence for us that PN. The idea is negligible evidence is evidence that raises our probability only by a tiny amount. And Charity suggests that this amount is going to be so tiny that it's not going to be sufficient to move us from a case where before receiving the testimony we were not rational in believing that P to a case where after receiving the testimony we are rational in believing that P. Okay. Um, now, as a good Oxford person, I'm an epistemicist about vagueness. Uh, so, on the way I'm thinking of things, there's get, it doesn't matter how small uh, an increase in probability has to be uh, to count as negligible. Uh, no amount, however small, is going to be such that it can play this role, uh, that it cannot bring you from being uh, not justified to being justified. Um, but again, I do, I do think this issue is not going to come up in the case of miracles. Why not? Because again, our priors in the case of miracles are uh, incredibly low, right? So they're very, very far from the threshold of justified belief. So uh, I don't know, let's suppose you need to be uh, 0.8 um, uh, have a justified belief. Um, let's suppose your prior probability in the miracle was somewhere here, and of course, if you just receive a tiny increase, you're very far from this threshold, right? If you just receive a tiny increase in your probability, that's not going to suddenly make you justified. So I think at least for the case in hand, uh, this is going to be fun. Okay, let me move on uh, to the next section, the role of unlikelihood. So the main thing that Charity Charity points out in this section is that it cannot be, as many commentators have suggested, that the only consideration in Hume's uh, argument is the unlikelihood of the miracle. And what she points out is that we're often happy to accept extremely unlikely claims on the basis of testimony, right? So suppose an otherwise reliable uh, informant tells you that they flipped a coin 20 times and they 
you believe them that they were kind of very careful to mark down uh, the results of the flip, and they tell you, you know, they got this uh, series of uh, 20 um, flip results. Right, in that case, we, we normally think we are justified in believing that this was indeed uh, the kind of result of the 20 coin flips, even though this was an incredibly unlikely event. Okay, so she argues that because of this, we have to realize that the other bit, the kind of track record of the testimony is really crucial to Hume's argument. And I think she's absolutely right about this. Um, in fact, I think if you look at Hume's text, it sounds to me like what he's doing is just uh, very sound Bayesian reasoning. So here is, for example, you have on your handout this quote from Hume at the end of part one. Hume says, uh, when anyone tells me that he saw a dead man restored to life, I immediately consider with myself whether it be more probable that this person should either deceive or be deceived or that the fact which he relates should really have happened. So here's the kind of reasoning I'm suggesting that Hume is going for. Well, one thing to note is he seems to be going for a kind of 50% threshold for um, rational belief. So he's thinking really what we should compare is the probability that a miracle happened given the testimony with the probability that a miracle didn't happen given the testimony. So we just want to see which of these is larger. And Hume points out, well, Hume doesn't point this out. Okay, so this again is going to equal to that. And this is going to equal to, okay, so what we're comparing are these two quantities. Now, these bits just cancel out, and I'm just going to cancel them out when we're comparing these two. And I've suggested that this is going to be incredibly high. In fact, we can assume it's 1. So let's assume this is 1. So really, we're comparing the probability of the miracle with the probability of the testimony given that there was no miracle times the probability of not miracle. And this, you'll note, is just the probability that there was no miracle and there was a testimony. Okay? So if you think about it, these sound to me like exactly the two quantities that Hume is comparing in this quote. On the one hand, the probability that the miracle occurred. On the one other hand, the probability that we have a false testimony that a miracle occurred. Right? A false testimony that a miracle occurred uh, concerns there being a testimony and the miracle uh, not occurring. Okay, so I think Hume, it looks to me, is doing um, exactly the right kind of Bayesian reasoning here. And if that's true, that again uh, supports uh, what Charity is saying here, because you'll note, of course, that when we're comparing these two quantities, uh, it matters, right, for this. Uh, to be smaller than this, it matters both that this is a small quantity, right? If this was incredibly high, then it might have been higher. And also that uh, this is a large quantity, right? That the probability of a 
false testimony is very high. So both of these components, we're comparing two things. It can't be that just by looking at one of them, we can know uh, that one of them is going to be larger than the other. Both components um, have to play a role. Okay, the last quick comment I want to make about this section is um, we've so far been talking as if we're doing everything in terms of probabilities and uh, a lot of what Hume says suggests that he's thinking in a uh, similar kind of line. Uh, but I do wonder if it might play any role in Hume's thought that a miracle isn't just an event that's very um, unlikely, but also that it's a violation of a law of nature. right? And you might think, just the way we normally think of belief, you know, if someone flipped a coin a hundred times and told you the result was blah, 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 you might feel uh, that you can be uh, rational believe that on the basis of their testimony. But if someone told you they flipped a coin and halfway through midair the coin changed color, uh, you might be very suspicious about that testimony. And you know, it might be, I, I don't exactly know how to think of these violations of a law of nature, but it might be that it's uh, less unlikely that the coin uh, you know, flips color uh, halfway through midair than that we got that particular uh, series of uh, 100 flips. Um, so I, I don't know if we're, uh, in fact, justified in having these different attitudes. But if we are, then it might be that part of what's going on is that we're not just thinking in terms of probabilities. There's something particularly bad about an uh, unlikely event that violates the laws of nature. OK. Um, good, so let me say something about the last section in Charity's paper. So in the last section, Charity raises a very interesting suggestion. The suggestion is this. Uh, suppose we kind of follow Hume in thinking all these considerations about probability and so forth should cause us to think that uh, it's indeed uh, very good, you know, when we get such testimonies of miracle, it's a very shaky basis on which to believe in the miracle. In some uh, sense of justification, we are not justified in uh, believing the miracle occurred. Perhaps we even should be justified in thinking it didn't occur. Um, however, Charity is thinking, so, so maybe we should think of all this uh, suppose the miracle in fact occurred, maybe we should think of all these reasons we have uh, both in thinking the miracle is unlikely and in thinking the testimonies of this sort are bad as a kind of misleading evidence case. And what Charity um, is trying to do is uh, she, she's kind of thinking that uh, recent work by Maria Lasson and Arnion uh, may have an interesting result here. So what uh, Maria argues is that it might be possible that uh, sometimes we know that P and we get lots of misleading evidence against P and we just ignore it and uh, retain our belief in P. And maybe in those cases, we still get to have knowledge despite what uh, people have often thought in epistemology. And charity things, maybe we can extend this idea to suggest that even if you form your belief initially uh, 
despite having lots of misleading evidence. So suppose a miracle really does occur, and there's a testifier that knows it occurs, and then they tell you that it occurs. And the thought is, even though you have lots of misleading evidence that it didn't occur, you shouldn't trust this testimony. If you anyway go ahead and trust it, maybe that's an unreasonable thing to do, but it can still count as knowledge. So despite everything that Hume says, you can get to have uh, knowledge by testimony of miracles. Okay, so I think that's a very interesting proposal. The one thing I want to say about this is I'm not sure I completely follow uh, all of uh, Maria's reasoning behind her view and some of the things she says makes me think she will actually be sympathetic to this kind of proposal, but uh, she could tell us later. But there's at least one sort of strand in her argument, one kind of way of defending the view that she's going for, which um, I think won't quite help in Charity's case. So suppose you thought things work like this. Uh, when you form a belief, it counts as knowledge just in case there is no, or yeah, just in case there's no close by possible world where you form a false belief using the same method. Okay, and suppose that when there is misleading evidence, you know, there's always the issue of individuation of methods, but suppose that when there is lots of misleading evidence around, uh, methods are individuated so that you have to count as using the method, you know, forming a belief in the light of a lot of uh, counter evidence and there are close by worlds where when you do that, you form a false belief, okay? So on this kind of way of thinking, when you form a belief and there's lots of counter evidence around, you can't count as no. Okay, still you might think, you might still be at least sympathetic to uh, some of the things Maria is saying, because you might think, suppose you formed a belief when there wasn't any misleading evidence around, so that wasn't a problem, that belief counted as knowledge. Okay, and suppose you just retained that belief and some misleading evidence came your way. And suppose it's not that when you get the new misleading evidence, you're tokening some new belief, okay, or you're rebasing your belief. You're just retaining the old one, you're not doing anything to it. Uh, you might think in that circumstances, despite the misleading evidence, you still get to have knowledge, right? And the idea here is something like this in general, we don't think that you know, when you form a belief that's knowledge and then you don't think about it, you go and do something else, we normally think you still count as having knowledge and you don't need to kind of continue justifying your belief all the time. Once it's knowledge, it's just stored there um, and it's fine. And if you're thinking in that way, the crucial component is that you're just retaining an old belief that was formed in a safe way, okay? So on this way of thinking, uh, while it's fine to kind of retain knowledge in the light of misleading evidence, it's not okay to form a belief. If you form a belief when there's misleading evidence around, then that belief cannot count as knowledge. And at least if this way of thinking about things is correct, then that won't really support the line Charity is going for because she wants to go for a case where you initially form a belief uh, in the light of a lot of misleading evidence and it counts as knowledge. So, I mean, there may be other ways to develop this view um, that don't have this asymmetric feature, but at least on this one, uh, I think this idea won't go through. But, okay, stop. Okay, uh, uh. <coughs>
Well, I want to uh, thank Oprah very much for these comments. Uh, I found them very helpful, and I think that uh, further revisions of the paper will be much improved uh, in light of them. Um, I just received the comments last night, so I don't have a whole lot uh, to say. There's some points that I'd like to think about a little bit more. But um, I'll just uh, address some of the points that she raises. So first, regarding why I, the relevant feature of uh, track record defeat includes belief that uh, uh, belief on the part of the agent that the track record is bad. I was, um, and, and one thing I should note also is that I think in an earlier draft I had uh, formulated the principle in terms of justified belief and somehow in the revisions that, that uh, fell out, but I think that's what I would want to uh, include on that principle. Um, so I was just sort of following both Hume's framework and the standard view of defeat in the literature, which usually requires that the agent have a belief in order for their uh, belief to be defeated. So um, although I am sympathetic to an externalist framework, um, I think uh, that's what I'm doing in the first half of the paper. Um, also, just wanted to note that in the last half of the paper, um, or in the third section of the paper, I'm sort of exploring how an extremely externalist view might be developed, but I uh, wasn't intending to sort of take on uh, that view myself. Um, so, uh, second, uh, regarding Ofra's point that uh, maybe all we need to get the argument going is that the track record is such that the, the group of testifiers is unreliable or the group of testifiers doesn't usually know when they speak and not that they actually speak falsely. Um, I think that uh, Hume, Hume's concern here is not just that we withhold when we receive testimony uh, to a miracle report, but that we actually um, believe that the report is false. So I think that he's going for the stronger principle, although I think it would be interesting to maybe develop a section of the paper that looks at the consequences of the argument if we weaken the principle and uh, instead of, instead of uh, <coughs> uh, <coughs> formulating it in terms of the testimony being, uh, most of the testimony being false, uh, rather it, uh, most of the testimony merely being unknown when spoken. So I think that's something that I'd like to um, explore. Um, Ofra thinks that it will be a lot more common uh, to have cases where P is strongly dismissible than I suggest. And um, I, I agree that there's more cases than I spell out in the paper, but I don't think that they'll be uh, as common as you're suggesting because I think that uh, it's gonna be fairly rare that we know in advance that when someone speaks, their testimony will be more likely to be false than true, even a little bit more likely to be false than true. I think in normal cases of testimony, um, we don't have that kind of evidence. And uh, I think uh, even if uh, we don't expect that we'll trust the testimony when we receive it, I think it generally is at least more likely to be true than false when someone says uh, P. So I don't think those cases will be um, all that common, but um, it, that's, that's a little bit tangential to the main line of reasoning in the paper. Um, Ofer raises a further point about whether or not um, the definition of miracle as a violation of a law of nature that Hume uses um, should be pointing us to something besides the improbability of the event. And I think this is an, an interesting question, and I'm 
Um, I'm not quite sure how to think about it. The way I was thinking in the paper, um, the uh, examples that I give seem to suggest that it isn't merely the improbability of the event that is causing us to distrust the testifier. And so I think that um, whatever contribution the violation of a law of nature is making, uh, the way I was thinking at least is that it must be a contribution uh, towards us uh, believing that the testifier is either deceived or, or mistaken. Uh, or sorry, deceiving or, or mistaken. Um, but um, I'm, I'm happy to uh, take uh, further comments if anyone has suggestions on how to incorporate that uh, further. Uh, regarding Ofra's last suggestion um, in, uh, with reference to the third part of the paper that, um, <clears throat> that perhaps we could uh, uh, only count as forming a belief under the method of uh, believing despite misleading evidence uh, in the case that uh, I offer. I will uh, allow Maria to speak to her view since she's here, um, but one thing that I think would be a cost about adopting this, per, this uh, point of view is that the order of evidence will matter, and I think that um, uh, uh, people might not want to go for, for, for that, but also it's not clear to me why um, the retaining of evidence, um, if you've already formed it via a safe method, why we wouldn't then be put in a position where we would want to describe uh, that method as uh, retaining evidence in the face of misleading, uh, or sorry, retaining knowledge in the face of misleading evidence. Um, and I think there'll be some pressure to then describe that method that way if, if you do that uh, uh, in the case where uh, you don't allow yourself to form uh, a belief uh, after you've had the misleading evidence. Okay. Uh, thanks to Charity and Ofra, and uh, we'll open it up to Q&A. Remember, hands and fingers. Uh, Liz? Hi, I'm fine, I'm fine. Okay. So just a small point, but I think it might be helpful to put some things. So we're talking about weekly dismissible testimony. The idea was, and I, sort of, I'm, I'm not, I definitely wouldn't dare to formulate like a Bayesian point, but the idea was this testimony is weekly dismissible, then after the testimony, your probability for the miracle event is going to be hitched up a tiny bit at most, right? But Hume, later on in the chapter, he explicitly says, supposing I have lots and lots of independent witnesses who can give independent, what seems to be independent testimony of the same event, then I should stop thinking it's American, I should accept that it's happened, and I should try, try, start trying to explain it as actually in accordance with the laws of nature. So I'm just thinking that it's probably worth getting on the table, even if you've got an individual piece of testimony that's weakly dismissible. And we kind of need to model ways what happens when you get lots. So I guess there are two ways. One is each time you get one of these bits, your, your probability for P goes up a tiny bit. Maybe sequentially you can get lots of them, then it finally hitches up, so you go from you know, disbelief to belief. That would be one way. And I guess another way is if you give yourself a, also a prior for you know, the probability of the event given lots of independent testimony. So there might be something to be worth getting on the table mm. as well if they're looking at this. I don't know what the best way to do it is. Right. Um, well, so as probably most of you are aware, there's a lot of literature on Hume's essay, and uh, one point that is raised in the literature is the idea that um, uh, testimony from multiple witnesses can add up. So this is one response to Hume's essay. And so I think you're right that in a case of weakly dismissing with enough 
testifiers they could add up. And I think there's some indication that Hume is going for strong dismissing and that um, in, in some cases he wouldn't expect it to add up. So the case that you're referring to, I think, is the eight days of darkness uh, yeah, yeah, reference. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, and, and I take a, a sort of minority position on Hume's essay with respect to that case. I think that towards the end of the essay, he makes a distinction between um, a miracle that would have a natural explanation, such as the Eight Days of Darkness case, and a miracle that's attributed to uh, a religion. And I think it's the second case that he thinks is strongly dismissible because this is yeah. a sort of special reference class of miracles that are serving to um, support religions, and these have an especially bad track record such that we can strongly dismiss them, but that in the Eight Days of Darkness case, um, the testimony doesn't uh, have the same bad track record. And so I think he's making a, dis a distinction yeah, there I that I didn't right. bring up in the paper, but... It sounds as though he's giving real miracles in the sense of violations of the laws of nature caused by, by sort of divine intervention, like just you know, giving them zero. I mean, yeah, I mean, when you read it, uh, it's the sense that you get when you read the essay, I think, is definitely that he's going for strong dismissing. Um, yeah. Uh, now on this, I noticed you say in the footnotes, that, or, well, in, in our section, really, that, uh, in fact, if there isn't a God, you can dismiss miracles. But, of course, if you're just treating them as perhaps natural phenomena, uh, you that that doesn't enter in. I mean, the question mm -hmm. is, can you believe the testimony? Now, now if it's being put forward for religious purposes, then mm -hmm. I can see you might. But, but there are all kinds of reasons why people might want to report something that's very odd, uh, which have nothing to do with religion and which are perfectly proper reasons. I remember Quine once saying that he thought that ghostly phenomena might one day be explained naturalistically. But I, I think taking a Humean line, all too often people were saying, and I've heard a lot of philosophers say this, you know, there aren't any ghosts, ghosts and phenomena don't happen, they can't happen, therefore any, any reference to them must be a lie or deception. And that's too quick, because you're running together God and the religious side, and the, the more natural issue as well. Mm -hmm. Right, so for the purposes of this paper, um, I was defining a miracle as a violation of a law of nature by a divine agent in order to sort of avoid the issue that but you just brought up. that makes it easier to dismiss people, um, Yes, but I, I mean, there's a lot of literature on how exactly to define a miracle, and I just, I wanted to avoid getting into uh, a lot of, a lot of that. I think, I mean, there's a lot of good work being done on that, and I didn't have anything further to contribute. So wh when I was considering receiving testimony uh, to a miracle, I was, ima I was imagining a sort of narrow set of cases where um, the testimony is uh, attributed to a divine agent. Um, but then people can be suspicious of that in a way that if people say, but I saw it, uh, mm -hmm. they, they perhaps may not be. But then there's the, still the further question that perhaps the thing they oh, saw yes, was right. given by a divine agent. Right, yes. So, so and you, I mean, I, I'm not, don't want to rule that out, but I just think the testimony ought to be neutral and then one ought to say, now, what's what going on here? Yeah. So one thing I would like, one way I would like to develop the paper is um, I mentioned at one point that you could have uh, partial dismissing, and so if someone testifies to P and Q, you could partially dismiss their testimony if you uh, dismiss P but you don't dismiss Q. And I think one way to uh, characterize that case is that they're testifying that an event happened and they're testifying that God did it, and you might be able to dismiss that God did it but not dismiss that the event happened. So, uh, But too many people run the two together and say, no, it didn't happen, you're lying. 
mm-hmm. uh, which I think is far too quick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I appreciate this is quite a general problem, but um, in cases where te- agents are testifying to uh, the occurrence of an event, that event, and that event happens to be a miracle, it's also going to fall under many other types, and with respect to those types, track record defeat might apply, and with respect to some other types, it might not. So do you have uh, a story to tell about which types we should be <laughs> when we're analyzing track record defeat in cases where there's this conflict between Well, right, so I appreciate the problem, and one of the reasons that I qualified the principle by saying that you don't have special evidence about S's reliability or special evidence about P was supposed to um, fix for for some of those problems. So I think, um, as I mentioned, obviously in a case where um, someone testifies to a miracle, but they also happen to be um, you know, your spouse, they're not going to fall into exactly the same reference class as the reference class of all people testifying to miracles. So the general, I was trying to, I think there is a reference class problem here, and, but I also think that the reasoning um, shouldn't be uh, set aside merely because of the reference class problem, so I was trying to formulate the principle in such a way that um, it would be reasonable to put people in this reference class. Uh, and I think a case where you have no other evidence about the testifier or no other, ev- no other evidence about what they're um, testifying to uh, would be a good candidate for a case when you're rational to put them in such a reference class. Right. I mean, I was, ju- I was just thinking, like, you know, suppose P is an event which falls under the type of being miraculous or whatever, uh, but then also falls under the type of occurring on a Friday, and most people who testify about events occurring on Friday testify truly, but most people who testify about miraculous mm-hmm. events testify falsely. What should I think, what does track record defeat say that I should do? Mm-hmm. Well, so I don't have a solution to the reference class problem, but um, I was just assuming for the purposes of this paper that um, when someone testifies to a miracle, uh, we have a general sense that what's relevant about their testimony is that it's a miracle and not that it's an event that happened on Friday and that that's a rational thing to do. But if you think that, I mean, if you have objections to placing the testimony under the type miracle, then, you know, certainly. I was hoping you could say just a little more about being special. Mm-hmm. Would this be enough? Just not being like most other most other people. That is, you might have thought you are someone special just in case they're especially astute or they're an expert or they're, um, as you say, your spouse. But it could just be here's somebody who's not like most people. And what I have in mind is, um, in a recent study, only 26% of Americans knew that the Earth revolved around the sun. So most people are, are pretty bad testifiers when it comes to planetary motion. But this person, it's not like the person's an expert or anything, it's just the person's <laughs> not like most other people. Is that enough to be special? Right. Well, <coughs> so I think it, it has to be special evidence in a certain way. I mean, if you're talking with someone and you, and you realize, well, they have red hair, so in that they're unlike other people and that they have red hair and this is special evidence about them. I mean, that's not going to be the kind of evidence that's going to counter the force 
of the defeat that you would have by putting them in this reference class of someone with a bad track record. So I think what you would have to have is some special evidence that gives you an indication that, uh, that uh, or gives you a reason to trust their testimony um, uh, when you wouldn't trust someone else's testimony to the same event. Um, Maria and then Laura? Oh, was that a follow-up? Oh, I, I think it is, yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> so just, um, I guess another question on this idea of you know, normal people and then what can make a person special. Um, I mean, it seems to me that that's um, a really hard, flat distinction to make between you know, sort of regular people um, where we can just sort of dismiss um, an average person's testimony a, a, across the board if most people have been unreliable. I guess, you know, intuitively, a person that I know nothing about who lived in an agrarian society you know, a few thousand years ago who says that you know, God made it rain, I, I'm going to give you know, somehow even less negligible um, you know, credence to, to it being true on them saying it than you know, one of my peers in, in Oxford. Um, regardless of whether I have sort of special evidence that this person is reliable, um, it seems like even just differences in time and place so I'm wondering whether there's a flat difference between you know, people in general and people I have special evidence about, or if it's more of a sliding scale, um, and if we have to make distinctions even among strangers. Um, well, I think certainly with the class of people you have special evidence for, there will definitely be a scale. Yeah. Right? trust my husband more than someone I know just a little bit about. You know? So there'll be lo lots of factors. Um, but I think you're asking, with the, in the cl within the class of people that we don't have special evidence yeah. about, will there also be a scale? Um, well, I don't know what would justify the scale if you don't have any, any special evidence. I mean, maybe what you're suggesting is that in a lot of it, I mean, I do think it's true that it's not going to be that often that you get testimony without some special evidence. And I, I was trying to set aside um, certain like mundane kinds of evidence that we would have that might, might not be relevant. But I, I do think that in most cases of testimony to the miraculous, you often have special evidence. And that's one of the reasons why I think that this kind of reasoning won't apply um, nearly as broadly as I think Hume was suggesting. Um, but I, and nevertheless, I think that you know, if, a if an absolute stranger came up to me on the street and, and, and gave me some report, I think I would be justified in in dismissing it. Um, yeah. I, I just was, was curious about how much work differences in time could get done. So Hume could say, you know, most people who have lived in the last several thousand years have been unreliable. Um, but maybe, maybe that's not actually great evidence that most people who would say something like that today would be unreliable. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that even even when you receive testimony from from someone who lived in a different time period of you, it's I mean, you, I think there's a lot of cases where you would have lots of special evidence about the about the person and about whether or not their testimony was approved, you know, maybe by the Catholic Church or whether or not there was an investigation. So it's not that just by being in a different time period, you're cut off from having special evidence that would support the testimony. Um, yeah. Um, Danny and was that a follow-up as well? Yeah. Uh, can do Danny and Lizzie. Uh, you said something. It connects to the direct test. You said something like if you bump into someone on the street and they tell you about a miracle, then you're not justified in believing. So what happens if that someone is is Jesus, who's both human and 
truly divine at the same time. And many people think that if God tells you something, well, boy, do you know it? So uh, well, how does it, you know, how does it apply in cases where a religion is trying to get off the ground? And you know, before Jesus is famous, he comes up to him and says, uh, "If it doesn't that, just to play around and uh, turn wine into cheese or something." Yeah. Well. I think this is this is one of the cases that um, sort of motivated me considering the paper because we hear stories from you know directly after the time of Jesus of people who have no other evidence and then not they're not approached by Jesus but they're approached by someone and they're just told these stories and sometimes they um, they do believe and one one question that I had was was is this instance rational when we set aside multiple testimony and all of the extra evidence and um, I think that uh, if the reasoning in these principles is is correct, that if you don't have special evidence to trust the person, um, then you wouldn't be justified in believing the testimony. So, so you're, that's like a reductionist view about testimony. So you have to have special evidence before you. Well, sorry. Um, when you when you believe that the track record, when you have a defeater, then you need special evidence you to trust the testimony. You about the about the miracle, but not about the person. Well, are you talking about a person who does not believe that the track record for mir miracle reports is bad? It sounds like no matter what the person says, you've got no special reason to believe them. Right. Yes, yeah, so, so it's like you, you've born into this reductionist view. No, no, sorry, but no, if the person tells you... So the, the reasoning is... The reason that you don't have special, the reason that you need special reason to trust the person is because you believe that the track record is um, so bad for this particular type of testimony. So if they told you something else, no. So I'm not adopting okay. the reduction. Uh, yeah, it was just a little point about special evidence So, so, I mean, special evidence will certainly include the social role that they're, uh, if you have knowledge that they're in a particular social role, um, then that will, that will be relevant. Um, Britt? Yeah, I, I just wanted to say something to reply to your questions. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, I think this is a great puzzle to think about, whether the kinds of things that I say about defeat would commit me to saying that, even sort of when the misleading evidence is already present, whether you so call the kind of case that I describe a type 1 case, where I, I see say, a red object, I come to know it's, it's red, and then later on someone tells me there's reflecting. And call the kind of case you're interested in a type 2 case, where if someone already tells me before I walk into the room that there's going to be trickling, and then I go in and see the object. So I'm doing it with, with seeing objects rather than testimony, because it's 
We're seeing it's easier to draw a distinction between factive methods, like seeing that P versus non-factive ones, like it's perceptually seeming to use a P. So the point that Afra is raising is that in the type one case, we could describe it as using method M and then just retaining your belief. Whereas in the type two case, there's going to be pressure to say that it can't just be method M. It has to be some different method. And that's why we have to treat the two cases differently. So um, I mean, I agree that I think um, it'll depend on a lot of details whether you can come to know in the presence of the evidence. I think that if you hold my view, it's going to be hard to say that there can never be cases like that. So, so here's why. I mean, so one question is, um, does it have to be a different method? I mean, what if the, the method that I originally use in the type one case is I believe that there's a red object in front of me on the basis of seeing that there's a red object no matter what else is going on. You know, why couldn't someone use that method? You know, they've already been told this trick lighting. Why couldn't they just walk into the room and believe that there's a red object on the basis of seeing that there's a red object? Now, I think as, as a matter of psychological fact or not, like the way we're constituted, it's going to be like we probably can't form beliefs on the basis of that. But I don't see why a possible being couldn't do that. But, but let's grant the frost point that, that the methods have to be different. Different. So, Fry, you're thinking that in the type 2 case, it's something like believing that there's a red object in front of me on the basis of its perceptually seeming to me as if there's a red object, and in the presence of evidence that how things perceptually seem to me is not a good guy to how they are. <laughs> something like that, right? Um, I think then the question um, arises, what could that kind of method produce safely? Like, it sounds like a terrible method, right? But if you're just running safety by saying, well, you know, in this actual case, are there nearby worlds in which I possibly believe on the basis of that method? It's not inevitable that there will be. I mean, what if the, <coughs> the testimony about the trick light is completely misleading? There couldn't have easily been trick light lighting. You know, that how things perceptually seem to me couldn't have easily misled me in any, any way. It's, I think it's going to be hard for the safety theorists to say that you couldn't form a safety um, now, I mean, you might want to sort of revise the safety condition and say that the method has to sort of generally be good. It can't be a terrible method. But even then, the question arises, well, take the method of believing P based on seeing that P, right? That's a factive method. Well, well, what about the method of believing that there's a red object based on seeing that there's a red object in the presence of evidence, but thinking that how things seem to me is in a good right and they are. I mean, even that is a factive method. So you know that that doesn't sound like a generally terrible method. So I mean I think you're absolutely right that in the sort of normal course of things, given the way we're psychologically constituted, I think it it might be hard to make a case that you can come to know. Um, but but I, I don't I don't think that in principle that couldn't happen. Sorry, that that was a very long answer. <laughs> yeah, I I mean I guess I was thinking that's helpful. Thanks a lot. I mean I guess I was thinking one thing I was thinking is. If you're going to run the safety story in any reasonable way, it can't be, I can't read what method you've been using just by looking at your psychology. So the idea is somehow, you know, there's going to be lots of different correct types, your psychological thing you did, right? They're like, you did something, you, you walked into the room, you, you did something, and then there are lots of true descriptions of what it was you did, and then there's a question of which of these true descriptions counts as your method, and I was thinking, to run this story, uh, you know, who knows how we're going to individuate methods, um, but the idea is, uh, you know, 
there's going to be some story about which type you used, and that story is going to be uh, have to somehow get around why whenever, for example, I form a true belief, the method, you know, one true description, whenever you form a true belief, here's a true description of something you did, is you formed a belief that P, when P, right? Uh, that's going to be a, right? That's going to be a method that's perfectly safe, but the thought is if, you know, if the safety condition of knowledge has any uh, hope of working out, then you're going to have to kind of not, these can't count as the proper method for the purpose of this theory. So that's why I was thinking, you know, when you say things like, well, why isn't this method available to you? I'm not thinking there's any psychological answer to that. That has to do with the kind of theory of safety and what counts as the right methods for the purpose of the theory. Um, the case where you're thinking, I, I, it's harder for me to know what to say about the case where it just turns out there are no close by worlds where, yeah, maybe in those cases you do have, uh, I mean, of course, you have to be careful that there might, there's also the question, what is a similar belief, right? Because there might be some other uh, belief, you know, then that's another kind of uh, uh, thing we need to play with a bit, which is what are some other, right? Suppose I, the, the belief in fact formed is there's a red object here and in all nearby worlds there's a red object here and you know, and then there's a question like, does that ruin my knowledge that, you know, there, there's some close by worlds where I also form beliefs about blue objects and I get those, I mean, I don't know, you know, obviously not any other false belief I have in some other worlds ruins my knowledge about this subject matter. But yeah, maybe this will give us limited wiggle room. But that's uh, uh, yeah. But I agree these these questions are tricky. But yeah. But the case of retention, I took it. I mean, this is just also to reply to something you. I, I mean, I took it the way of thinking of retention wasn't that now I'm kind of forming a new belief that falls under the method retaining an old belief or retaining an old belief in the presence of, uh, the thought was, right, there is no new belief <laughs> formation, so there's no question about, you know, what method I'm using to, uh, that, I guess that was the way I was But you're thinking that when you retain a belief that the, the, the method of retaining doesn't have to be safe? Right, I'm thinking there's no, yeah, methods doesn't come into it. So when you assess whether my belief is knowledge, you just look at, right? It is that very same belief, and when you assess whether a belief is knowledge, you just look at what happened when I formed it. And yeah, there's nothing, I don't, but yeah, I, I agree with you that if you think of retaining as a kind of new belief forming mechanism that also has to be saved, then you're gonna uh, get all those problems. I mean, even if you don't think of it as a new mechanism, you might think, well, now the total is a basis, is the combination of the original method Right. I think it would be bizarre to say if I was terrible at retaining, like I just arbitrarily could flip from going to from B to not B. Like right. if, my, if, if that's how I tried to retain beliefs, I mean, I think it would be bad to say that in the end. Mm -hmm. I know because it doesn't matter how reliable my retention is. Mm -hmm. right. um, it was just like a twist on the on your idea with like. You have the, the seeing cases, and then you first have the case where no one's told you about, no one has given you misleading evidence about the possibility of like fake lighting or anything like that. And then you go in and you see that 
that's a red object in the room. And then you have another case where someone tells you antecedently that, like, falsely that there's red lighting, and you go in and it's like, why can't you still use the fact of method of like seeing that there's like a red ball? You might think, if you like, the kind of Williamsonian thing where like seeing that is a way of knowing that, then like independently of ever like adopting anything with safety, like let's say you just don't have a view about like safety or something else, then if you like anything that sort of defeatist, you, you're just going to have to say that when you go into the room in the second kind of case, you can't, you can't see that as a red object in the room. And maybe that sounds really weird, and then that's maybe a reason for going non-defeatist, but that's just like something about the seeing thing, seeing that is, it's not just like a, if you like the Williamson thing, it's not just like effective methods, it's like even more than that. It's like, a, it's, a, it's a way of knowing the thing or I guess, yeah, so, so that, that, that's a good point. I guess then you could, I could run it by saying, well, it's about this function, it's about perceptual experience, and there's a kind of, there's the real perceptual experience where something is given to me, and then there's the kind of fake experience. But, and then say, well, when you walk into the room and the object really is red, and then, you know, it's the kind of, the real perceptual experience. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you basically come out experience. So that, then I'm not, as it were, begging the question, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. More questions? Maybe just, just a little thing on, on the track record. If it seems to me there are going to be cases where I don't have special evidence about you, but I just know that the people that have been wrong have been unlucky. I mean, suppose a new soccer team's formed, and the first four games they lose by a complex series of flukes. And everyone's, you know, to clearly inferior teams, and you know, people have a terrible track record, and that, and then, you know, someone else predicts that they're going to win the next game. I mean, just the fact that the track record's bad uh, doesn't 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 do much. I mean, basically, if I know they've just been unlucky, then it's only basically when their bad track record is indicative of um, being a lot worse than unlucky, but I then project to the next case. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I, in yeah, that, I in that case, that. I don't have special evidence that you, you, you're you modally more reliable than them or anything. Right. Right. So I think I think that Hume's not thinking that, they're, that they were all just unlucky, but yes, I can see yes, how, yeah, I didn't, yeah, yeah, the principle. Is, yeah. Is, is a bit, is going up. yeah, thanks. Uh, it's actually back to the sort of special evidence thing. I was just like wondering when I read the paper, like what kind of special evidence I would sort of need to have about a person in order for it to sort of work in the miracle case. I mean, I can sort of see how it worked like in another in a lot of other cases, but I, would, I was just if you had, had any thoughts on that. Mm -hmm. um. Well, it's hard to say anything very general because I think it will depend on the specifics, but one thing I've already mentioned is that um, if you have like, multiple testimony, people think that that 
you know, will add up. Um, I I think that if um, you know if well, so there's several there's several things that will make a difference here. One is that miracles aren't going to be equally unlikely for everyone. So depending on your background evidence, you may have a higher or lower expectation that a miracle will occur at you know some point. But I think that if my husband tells me that he observed a miracle, I have a lot more reason to uh, believe that it occurred. As long, I mean, um, as long as I think that the probability that you know he would misreport is uh, lower than the probability that a miracle occurred, then I mean that's what it's going to come down to is like weighing those two probabilities. So it's going to depend on a lot of the details of the Kay. of the case. But yeah. yeah, I just think Hume says quite a lot. I think you're focusing a lot on the case where the person is kind of intentionally deceiving or knowing. But you know, Hume says quite a lot of interesting things about just people being themselves. You know, sort of psychological mm -hmm. mechanisms that might make you think you've seen a miracle when you in fact haven't. So I think we need to take. You know, even if someone you 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 have a huge amount of trust in them not you know, trying to lie to you and say something they believe is false. Right. You might. Yes, right. actually, so I think there is actually another kind of defeat that shows right. up in his argument that I haven't brought out in the paper, but I'd like to add, and that's that just this general idea that people have a readiness, as he says, to believe, um, to believe the absurd, or maybe they're not very discriminating in certain right. cases, and I think that that would be a, an additional component <coughs> that could provide defeat. Um, Adam had a follow-up. Yeah, this discussion was just making me wonder, do you think that there could be cases where the particular nature of the piece of testimony <coughs> is such that you might already have good reason to believe that there's no one who could possibly have any expert evidence on that type of thing? The thing that I'm wondering is, you can imagine some really weird piece of testimony, but if Roger Pindrose or Richard Feynman tells me, I might think, well, maybe they know some bizarre thing that I have, would have no idea of how to comprehend it. Maybe that might probability would go up a little bit. But suppose someone testifies and says, look, a law of nature has been violated, and it's been violated in a galaxy that's three billion light years away, or something like that, on some remote planet. You think, well, geez, there's no way that anyone could possibly have gotten that far to be able to observe such a thing. Do you think that there are certain classes of propositions such as there simply isn't, no matter independent of social roles or things that we can know about the individual such that are reason to believe the target proposition would go up. Um, okay, so if I understand the case, it sounds like the testimony that they're offering itself is bearing an indication that the person is likely either deceiving you or mistaken about the fact that this occurred because, yeah. not just because the event is unlikely, but because um, there's just there's just no way that this person could have observed that event, so they must be However, they came to form this belief. If they're not deceiving you, they must be. That's that's right. And there would be a, a further background idea in play, which is the idea that with, with regard to that particular piece of testimony, this just isn't the type of testimony that could admit of any special expertise. Mm -hmm. um, well, I'm not sure exactly what to say about that because I don't know. I mean, so I don't. I'm not sure what you mean by special expertise. But if you if what you mean if what you're asking is whether or not 
there's any potential special evidence I could have about the person that would offset I'm sorry, that. That's, that's okay, yeah. Um, then that sounds yeah, that sounds plausible to me. I mean, if someone if it's so likely that they're um, if it's so evident that they're deceived, then um, yeah, then even the fact that you know they're your mother or your father may not offset. Yeah. Um, uh, Tim had a follow up. Yeah, I, I was wondering, sorry, maybe a follow-up to, follow to Sanjay, so maybe something new, but I was wondering, so the, the case where um, someone sort of is claiming in giving the testimonies to this superior status, I'm wondering how that fits into it. So I say to you, look, being myself Jesus Christ, you can believe me when I tell you that I was resurrected, um, you know, and being omniscient as I am, and only like these convey truths, and... So they claim the spoke. Is that is that all, is that all right? As it were, then well, okay, then you you know you you have got special reason to believe they testify because they're testifying to how special they are. Oh, and by the way, there's life on the galaxy three billion years ago, three billion light years away, or something. You know, they are they're claiming mm -hmm. themselves this special status or omniscience, and well, fine. Then from then on. Mm -hmm. So the claim, the the claim that they are Jesus Christ would itself be a a sort of miraculous report, wouldn't it, given... Well, well said, I've got this hypostatic union <laughs> through the <laughs> I mean, that's as a sort of metaphysical yes. necessity. It's no contravention yes. of the law of nature that I'd be fully Yes. Okay, that. so, well, it sounds like your question is, like, under what circumstances do we believe when we're presented with special evidence for, for the testifier? Mm. And, can that, and can that be evidence provided by the testifier? Um, himself, and um, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not sure what to say about that. I mean, there's lots, there's lots of questions. I mean, if there's a testifier giving a miracle report, and then someone next to him says, "Oh, he's really reliable." Um, then then I could say it's exterior, but I was thinking when the, te the testifier themselves wrapped up in their testimony is a claim to be satisfying your condition for being super special. And I don't think it's entirely moving. I think a lot of people would say, oh, these gospel reports of Jesus' resurrection. Sure, it's not as a result of the testimony of these ancient guys writing their documents that I believe, but it's as a result of the testimony of the Holy Spirit, which spoke to me as I was reading these things that I now come to believe that Jesus was resurrected. And the Holy Spirit is hence, you know, meant to satisfy these conditions. So it's not an entirely moot. Of course, you know, it's a, you know, you know if you actually meet or if you do, you pretty run away. Somebody who claims to be now the historical Jesus and hence through that specially you know, equipped, but they, people do claim this other thing. Right, so, but it sounds like what you're asking is when are we justified in believing special evidence about the testifier as a general question. Well, and yeah, then that'll have to be settled before we can say in any particular instance that I do have special evidence for this. So, yeah, I don't, I don't have a lot to say about when those circumstances will there are a few follow-ups. So, Matt, was yours a new thread? Or? Okay, okay. So, I think uh, Lizzie and John had uh, follow-ups. Got to keep them a bit short. We're uh, running a bit of a Yeah, case. I just had a very quick thought. The excellent point made in front of me about you know, the stuff that happened. Anybody ever know that? But I mean, this isn't this isn't just a special thing kicking in in this case. Because I mean, I mean, if you're estimating like likelihood of truth, you might just have flat statistics. You know, sort of seventy percent of testimony of this type is true, but. In usually, if we're estimating like whether a testimony is likely, the probability of truth, what we actually have to think about is how likely that this person knows about that kind of thing. 
just like every day. If someone tells me, my son says, you know, there's some milk in the fridge, I say, you haven't been at home for a week, how do you know? I mean, that's mm -hmm. always going to come. How could this testify have, had, could have been so placed to come to know about this? I mean, that's always going to be factored. It's not, it's not only picking this. Mm -hmm. It's something that no one could ever come to know. That's going to you know, make it very unlikely that the testimony is going to be, mm -hmm. be reliable. Um, John, just a little thing on, on, on Tim's question. I think, I think you've got to consider the possibility that the evidence is different in the good and the bad case. It might be in, in the bad case, what you get as evidence is that someone said that. And can, it might not be the conditional on them saying that. It's more likely that the miraculous report is true. But it might be in the good case when they have the special union, then you get to know by testimony as their, their, prelude, their prelude gives you knowledge that um, they have a special union, and then in the good case, you then it, it may be the conditional on them having a special union. It, it, it is much more likely. So I, I don't think we can assume that in the good, you know, it, it, it might depend on whether we're in the. We might have to look case by case at the good and the bad case in order to answer your question properly. Uh, uh, let's see, um, Matt and Max. Uh, no, as, I'm not sure this is for you or for Rob, uh, but I was looking at the, the you wrote on the left side, and it seems so. If, if it comes, to, if when you get a boost, it's going to come down to that relationship, the, mm -hmm. the probability that you get the testimony on there being a miracle is greater than the probability of the testimony. And we already conceded that it's, that's usually one. And it's not really gonna, or close to one, it's not gonna matter much who the testifier is, is that right? So like, if, if your testifier is like your spouse, but your spouse you know, is a staunch atheist, then the probability you get the testimony is very low, <coughs> but the probability you get it on the, on, the miracle, on the ring of miracle might be very high. Similarly, if, if they're like a circumspect, but nevertheless theistic, except for the possibility of miracles, well, the probability you get testimony is going to be lower than the probability that you get testimony on the being miracle. And even if you have a gullible, charismatic, evangelical Christian friend who likes to postulate miracles happening all over the place, still, the probability that they testify on the being miracle is going to be higher than the probability just that they testify. So it looks like you're going to get a boost just about no matter what. Especially in the cases where you know something about the testifier. Yeah, I think that's likely, but it depends. I mean, think it's just one extreme the case is going to be one where you get a very maybe insignificant, not very significant boost. Yeah, I mean, you know, one extreme case is that the probability there will be a testimony is just one, right? Independently of right, the per you know the person is going around, you know, it's definitely going around and saying there is a miracle no matter what. That's one kind of case, and. Also, you know, I said that I think this might be one, but that was building in quite a bit of assumptions, right? So that was building the assumption that uh, part of the content of the miracle is that there'd be witnesses, but you can think of other cases where it isn't like that. Sure. You know, sometimes there are miracles and no one's there to see them. Sometimes there are miracles and people are there to see them, but they don't tell anyone sometimes. Uh, yeah, I mean, it depends on the details. Um, nice. Yeah, so Charity, um, I had a question about your reverse test. Um, so I think um, this seems right. You wanted to say uh, it, it's not just about sort of the bare kind of uh, statistical probability, like, you know, you, um, 
that your friend was sitting in seats like 22 in the stadium. That's statistically improbable, but that that's fine, and you can you can rationally believe that. Um, but you gave the example of like if someone says their phone number is one two three four five six seven, and there's something about that that it, it's. So I was just wondering, is there some kind of like interesting story we could tell about, or a general kind of way of characterizing? Um, sort of events that we're likely to make, that a person would be likely to make up if they were going to make up. So it's like, so the, the phone number example is like, you know, you think intuitively someone's going to make up a nice ordered pattern, a, a phone number that sort of conform, conforms to some kind of very, um, you know, I don't know, appealing or, or, or that, you know, pattern that, that we, we like. Um, is, there, is, there, is there some kind of general characterization we could give like that? We can say, you know, it's a feature of human psychology that if a person is going to make up an event, it's going to be have these sorts of features um, that would play into the sort of a priori probability. Um, I, I think I haven't read anything that specifically outlines what you're asking for. I think that um, there are a lot of. Di different ways that we identify signs of deception, and I don't know that they'll all have any anything, any one thing in common. Um, but there is a lot of literature, like in psychology, that I mean, I think that would be the place to look for identifying more of those features. And that's actually something I'd like to explore um, and maybe bring into the paper a little bit more. Is like what sorts of things in general are signs of deception, um, although I don't think all of them are going to fall under the same heading. Um, I'm afraid the empirical literature all said that people are very bad at Oh, okay. So maybe there won't be anything helpful. It's only because of a very limited experimental situation. It doesn't have to be from cues, pale, and perception, but the evidence is that people aren't very good at it. Okay. There you go. Okay. Um, well, let's thank uh, Charity and Ofra.